We're plunging back into the book, the riveting book of 1 Kings this morning. Uh, These are reports of the life and times of ancient Israel under the monarchy. But more than this, they're stories that introduce us to the living God. Despite appearances to the contrary sometimes, God is actually the main player in everything that unfolds in these books. And sometimes he's called God, sometimes he's called Yahweh, that's his personal name in Hebrew. In the New Testament, he's called Jesus. Different names, same God. And he's very much at work in chapters 18 and 19 of 1 Kings, as we'll see. In the first place, what we're going to discover is that the throttle is being turned up. The engine is being revved. The showdown with Baal that we talked about last week is continuing. But then there's an unexpected twist in chapter 19. And all of this, Elijah the prophet runs. On the one hand, he runs Baal out of town. The Baal delusion is exposed as a fraud. He runs Baal out of town. But on the other hand, Elijah himself runs out of town. He flees. What on earth? Don't go to the bathroom or you'll miss out. These are the two themes we're going to unpack this morning. Let's give our attention to God's Word. And since we're not going to have slides today, I would ask you to keep your Bible open if it's in front of you or your Bible app, whatever it is that works for you. Elijah runs Baal out of town. We'll start here. Look with me at chapter 18, verses 20 through 24. I'm going to read those now. So King Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled all of the prophets of his on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. And let Baal's prophets choose one of the bulls for themselves and then cut it into pieces and put it on wood, but don't set fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and put it on wood, and I won't set fire to it either. And then we'll call on the name of our God, and you call on your God, and I'll call on my God, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. The event that's unfolding here is the final act in a three-part drama that spans over these chapters, right? Yahweh is discrediting Baal. It starts in chapter 17, as we saw last week. Baalism has spread throughout the land of Israel by the depraved ruler, under the influence of the depraved rulers, Ahab and Jezebel. And so the people are forgetting who really is God. Since Baal was seen to be in control of the weather, Yahweh first withholds the rain. We'll see who's the Lord of the storm. That's the point, right? That causes famine, not only in Israel, but also in Sidon, which is the center of the Baal cult. But Yahweh, the living God, is more than capable of taking care of his own people, as well as some Sidonians. Again, chapter 17, the Lord doesn't discriminate, right? He's always looking to enlarge the family. Moreover, God can enlarge the family by raising the dead. See, unlike Baal, Yahweh is not subject to the power of death. That was all part of chapter 17, the fifth estate expose of Baal, produced by Yahweh, directed by Elijah. Now, after our week-long commercial break, we, we come back for the final act, chapter 18. Before we dive in, let me say something about the uh, striking events that we've just heard read about in chapter 18, right? This stuff happened. Based on the nature of the text, it's more plausible to accept that it happened than it is to deny that it happened, right? Now, I realize that it may be tempting to label this, these texts as ancient religious propaganda, right? And therefore, fictitious. But that won't do. 
Let me explain why. The books of kings are decidedly non-propagandistic, right? There's no brainwashing in this literature. First and second kings are embarrassingly honest about the screw-ups of Israel's princes and the people at large, right? And that even applies to the prophets, as we'll see shortly. For all you sophisticated types, that means that there's no valorization in these texts. You do not, dear people, find this type of self-deprecation in other ancient Near Eastern royal literature, right? That literature, it talks about the successes of its kings. It talks about the kings having continual favor with God. There's no confession of any flaws. They're propagandistic. Well, first and second kings are not. If this literature is anything, it's anti-propaganda. It's anti-propaganda, right? By and large, it makes everybody look bad. Why? Because it's committed to telling the truth. It's committed to telling the truth, right? That's the consistent character of these texts, right? So we need to be cautious when we want to dismiss events like the stuff we read about in chapter 18 as being concoctions of propaganda, right? That dog won't hunt, as they say back in South Carolina where I'm from. That dog won't hunt. Now, back to the story. Chapter 18, verses 20 through 24 set the stage, right? There's a duel at high noon. Both sides are going to build an altar. They're going to slaughter an animal sacrifice. And they're going to seek some fire from heaven to broil the roast. Elijah picks the fire test because Baal was also associated with lightning, but also because Yahweh, the living God, is associated with fire throughout the Old Testament. Right? All of this is about unmasking Baal, right? not just as a weaker God, but as a total sham. That's what's going on here, right? In actuality, according to the Bible, Baal doesn't have an objective existence. He's like a shadow. It looks like something's there, but there's not really anything there. And that becomes staggeringly clear in the next few verses. Look with me at verses 26 through 29. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from the morning until the noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God, lowercase g. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be waked up. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves as is their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The prophets of Baal, and there's 450 of them, can't get the attention of their God. They shout. They dance. They try to impress Baal with everything they're doing. Eventually, as verse 28 tells us, they, they cut and slash themselves, right? They're desperate. Tenacious Elijah adds fuel to their lack of fire, right? Perhaps Baal's out in the outhouse. That's what he says, right? That's actually what the Hebrew says, and you'd be shocked at just how many translations try to middle class that verse. Right? <laughs> By the end, the Baal prophets are like toddlers pitching a fit in the supermarket. Anything to get their way. They're howling. But here's the problem. There's no Baal whose attention they can grab. There's no one there. Look at verse 29. They raved on, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Houston, we do not have contact. In stark contrast to this, Yahweh is more than ready to demonstrate his power, right? Elijah's not sending for God, right? God sent Elijah. He sent Elijah so that the Baal delusion could be run out of town. There will be fire on this mountain. 
In verse 30 through 34, what you see is Elijah building an altar. That altar, that edifice, it signifies covenant renewal, right? That's why it's made out of stones that represent the different tribes of Israel. It's about restoring Israel's fire and passion for her first love, Yahweh. After he sets things up, he dumps a lot of water on that altar, right? Just so there'll be no questions. This is not spontaneous combustion. And then having done that, Elijah, Elijah simply prays. No dancing, no self-mutilation, no hysterics, no manipulating God. Look at verse 36 through 40. Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things according to your word. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up all the water that was in the trench. And the people saw it, and they did what we would do. They fell on their faces. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yahweh is God. And then Elijah said, seize the prophets of Baal and let them not escape. And they seized them, and he brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. To put it simply, the duel is over. Baal ain't standing, and neither are his cronies. Repentance, there's repentance on the part of the Israelites who are watching this. What do they say? Yahweh is God. Not Baal is God. Yahweh is God. They know power when they see it, right? That's the point of all of this. Their hearts have been turned back towards Yahweh. This is what God's interventions in human history and the first and the last are really all about, turning our hearts back to him. You need to see that. That's the center of what everything God does in his relations with us. I realize that what happens in verse 40, that last verse, tempts us to want to abuse the Queen's English. It's tough. At a cursory glance, it makes us cringe. This is what I want you to see, however. Yahweh's first desire is not to annihilate the Sidonian Baal worshipers. Chapter 17 makes that very clear, right? And so does chapter 18, verse 37, right? God acts to turn hearts back to himself, right? That entails, in this situation, that entails breaking the Baal delusion, right? Because the Baal delusion is a pack of lies, and it fuels a whole bunch of depravity and injustice, which you read about in chapters 17 to 22. Here's what we have to appreciate in these tough verses, right? Based on what they witnessed, the prophets of Baal could have responded like the vast majority of the Israelites who were there on top of that mountain, Yahweh is God. If they had done that, Elijah would have welcomed them with open arms because that's Yahweh's MO. Again, remember chapter 17 with the Sidonian widow. She was a Baal worshiper. Yahweh is principled, not prejudiced. He's principled, not prejudiced. But that's not how the Baal prophets respond, right? There's no repentance. There's no turning. Just like some of those hard-hearted Pharisees that we've been reading about in the Gospel of Mark, right? They, look, they encounter God's power and God's mercy, and they say, no, thank you. No, thank you. There's a great sign in this chapter, right? But they remain stubborn. In this scenario, the problem is not with Yahweh. It's with them. It's with them, right? You can try to paint God in dark colors in this verse, but that's distorting what the text is actually saying, right? These guys chose to remain loyal to Baal. And remember, as we said last week, there is death, not life, in the heart of Baal. Therefore, they're really choosing death. And in the context of this little narrative, 
They're simply getting what they chose for themselves. That's what 1 Kings is saying here. Again, I realize this is very difficult, right? If you want to talk more about this, you can email me or Alistair. We'll get a cup of coffee with you. It is okay to ask these types of questions. Let me add one more thing here. The fact that we're having this conversation is very important for our church, right? What you're coming to know in this conversation, in this moment right now, is that at St. Peter's, preaching isn't just about the speaker's whims, right? This isn't a TED Talk. It's about the Bible. The fact that we don't skip over the hard parts, and there are a lot of churches that do, right, proves that that commitment, right? We're a people under authority, the authority of God's word. That's our first value. Okay, moving on. Tucked within this eye-popping series of events in chapter 18, there's something that's very relevant for us, right? Look at Elijah's big question in verse 21. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him, right? To whom is that question addressed? It's, it's addressed to the masses of the Israelites there, all the people on top of the mountain, right? What's going on here spiritually is, according to Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from 100 years ago, very insightful, is this. He says, on the one hand, their ancient traditions are leading them to fear Yahweh. But on the other hand, their interest in court, the court of Abraham and Jezebel, is leading them to bow before Baal. And so the people are faltering between two opinions, close quote. Baal in the morning, God in the evening. That's how it's going, right? We know that attitude, don't we? And our, cult, we, our culture loves to waver between different spiritual opinions, right? We don't deal in truth. We deal in preferences and preferences, right? Here's what it sounds like. Aren't all religions basically right and the same, right? Why do I have to choose? Or it can sound like this. I'll be a Christian, but if someone else wants to be a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Lululemonist, why can't they do that, right? Can't we just have a neutral space on these questions and issues, right? Well, Elijah says no. Elijah says no, right? It's better to be for God or against God. In fact, the neutral position is worse because it lacks honesty. It pretends. Yes, you did hear me correctly. Postmodern spiritual neutrality is an illusion. The scriptures are really pressing us here. We tend to think that the attitude of spiritual neutrality or spiritual relativism is a non-dogmatic attitude, right? And therefore, it's tolerant and super commendable, right? But it's not. It's anything but neutral. In actuality, it's intellectually dishonest and psychologically problematic. Let me show you what I mean. We all know the analogy that's commonly used in these discussions about different religions, right? Different religions are like different paths to the top of the same mountain. I had a picture of this to show you. I worked really hard to find it, so you'll have to use your visual imag imagination, right? Different religions like different paths to the top of the same mountain. That's the worldview of postmodernity. That's postmodern spirituality, right? That's not an assumption or belief that we look to. It's one that we look through. That's how we think. It's all over the city. It's probably in this room right now. Some of us probably in me. Still being converted more deeply. But think about it. If you hold that assumption, you're claiming the superior point of view. Right? You're claiming to be the person who's standing right on top of the mountain looking down all around, right? The one who can see that all the little religions of the world are working their way up to the same top, top, same direction, same top of the mountain, right? And therefore, what you're doing is saying that your view is the greatest, right? The most true. You're claiming the very thing you want to deny to everybody else. That's intellectually dishonest. But it's also psychologically problematic, right? How so? Because by being spiritually relativistic, 
You think you're not dogmatic, but you actually are. Right? Inside, you really think your view is superior to everybody else's, but you just don't say it. You're in denial. That's psychologically problematic. What happens in chapter 18 is meant to press us. That's why I've got to press right now, pressing you, pressing myself. I felt pressed all week by this passage, right? Presses us the same way God pressed the people on the mountain the first time, right? We've got to take a decision. It's either God or Baal. It's either God or fill in the blank. Any so-called neutral option, I want to take a neutral third option. It doesn't exist. There's really only two options. It's always a second option in disguise. To put it bluntly, and the text does not waffle on this, according to the Bible, listen up, Agnosticism is a choice against God. Agnosticism is a choice against God. That's not, how, that's not how we frame it, but that's what it is. We can't twist this, by the way, into a, some sort of conflict between an unreasonable God of the Old Testament versus a nice, all-accepting Jesus of the New Testament. I once tried that, then I read the New Testament. To be sure, I know this type of ultimatum that God's putting before us, it's pretty uncomfortable to come to terms with, right? Some of you may be worried. You may think that a wholehearted, exclusive commitment to the God of the Bible will make you into a narrow, intolerant, even a mean person. You've been taught that that's what happens when you make an exclusive commitment, right? And so you're staying neutral so you can be a nice person. The logic there is bad. Whether you're a mean or nice person isn't about whether you make an exclusive commitment or not. It's about the object of your commitment, not the commitment itself, right? In the case of Christianity, an exclusive commitment is the object is Jesus Christ, right? In whom the fullness of God, the fullness of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is pleased to dwell. That's what the New Testament says. And who is Jesus? The one who loves like no one else loves. The one who did good like no one else ever since has. So is following Jesus going to make you a terrorist or a bigot or a hater? Someone who despises anyone who's different, right? Someone who condemns those who don't live Christianly? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not if Jesus is really leading you, right? Don't be duped by these type of simplistic ways of thinking, right? Get to know Jesus. Elijah ran Baal out of town. Maybe there's some attitudes in us that need to be run out. Let's move on. In chapter 19, second chapter of today's sermon, there's a very unexpected series of events. Elijah himself runs out of town. He flees. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, right? Ahab went home, and he told Jezebel, his wife, everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow morning. And he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And then he went a bit further, a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Lord, take, take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. Now, at the end of chapter 18, at the end of that big showdown, after Baal is discredited, Elijah zooms off. He zooms off ahead of King Ahab to the capital of Israel. It's called Jezreel. He zooms off to the capital, and Elijah had probably imagined himself at that moment as holding a place of great prominence in the spiritual renewal of Israel, right? He was going to be a big architect of a spiritual renewal, right? But what we're seeing here is that the renewal that he hoped for is stillborn. Verse 5, 
This is what the queen says. So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life, Elijah, as one of those prophets that you killed by this time tomorrow. Right? King Ahab may have fallen silent before Yahweh, but not his wife. And it seems that the queen wears the pants in this palace. One scholar puts it like this. Jezebel is the architect of all the anti-Yahweh policies in Israel at this time, right? And right now, her gun is aimed at Elijah. In 18, earlier in chapter 18, verse 4, we read, we didn't read this today, but what do you read? That she slaughtered a whole bunch of prophets of Yahweh. Will Elijah be next? He thinks so. His heart melts. Verse 3, he was afraid, right? And so he runs out of town. He flees far, far away. Now, I want you to notice that in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 19, there is no mention of the word of the Lord. What's that mean? You don't see that phrase. It means that Yahweh did not direct Elijah to do this, right? In fact, when Yahweh reappears, when the conversation starts again, he sends Elijah back. In these moments, the great prophet is filled with fear, not faith, and his instincts to survive are silencing the word of the Lord. Chapter 3 and 4 tells us that he goes from the northernmost part of Israel to the southernmost, right? And then out into the wilderness. That's like going from Victoria to Newfoundland. Far, far away. But more conspicuous than this is his plummeting morale. Look at verse 4. He says he wants to die. He's ready to give up on life. Take me to McDonald's. Right? It's just going on. What's the point of this shocking report? Let me put it like this. Elijah, the hero, is being seen in a place of weakness. Right? He's a great prophet, but nonetheless, he's an ordinary human with foibles and failures and fears and struggles to live by faith, right? And that is staggeringly apparent by the cognitive dissonance that is clearly at play in his life right now. And all of a sudden, Jezebel seems more powerful than Yahweh. It's cognitive dissonance. We all know about this. If you're a Christian, it happens when your circumstances seem greater than God. I spent some time there last week. Yet there's more going on here, more with Elijah. And this is where I really want to dwell this morning. On the one hand, Elijah is taunted by an external enemy, Jezebel. He runs out of town because of that external enemy. But he's also stricken by disillusionment. That's why he wants to die, right? This experience is tied to an internal enemy. I call it the enemy of unfulfilled expectations. The enemy of unfulfilled expectations. That's what explains Elijah's crushed spirit. Look at verse 4b. Elijah wanted to be the prophet who was more effective and more successful than all the prophets who came before him. That was his dream. That's what he thought about when he was at the stoplight on his donkey. In other words, he had an agenda, but his agenda wasn't the same as God's agenda, right? And that realization equals disillusionment. Glance at verse 9 and 10. This is what Elijah said. He came to the cave and he lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came back to him. There it is. There's God. And said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And even I, I am only left, and they seek my life to take it away. This is the language of disillusionment, right? How do we know? Because everything is negative. There's no mention in anything that is said here, and again, he says it all in verses 13 and 14 again, there's no mention in any of this of all the great things God has just done, right? There's no mention of life overcoming death, chapter 17, verse 22. There's no mention of new altars to Yahweh being built, chapter 18, verse 30. There's no mention of thousands of hearts being turned back to the true God, chapter 18, verse 39. 
There's no mention of a massive public discrediting of Baal, and there's no mention of the rain coming back as an act of God's mercy. Chapter 18, verse 45. Elijah's disillusioned. And so he speaks with rabid negativity, right? Just like us when we're in this space, right? And he speaks with exaggerated self-loathing and with a sense of exaggerated self-importance. There's self-loathing. Look at verse 4. Elijah wants to die. Why? Because what he facilitated on Mount Carmel didn't have the outcome that he had in mind. He didn't live up to his own standards, so he hates himself. Right? There's also exaggerated self-importance. Look, look at verse 9 and 10. He basically tells God that everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Well, only God can make that judgment. And then he says that all the people of Israel are after him. They're all after me. Actually, it's just one woman that's after him. He says also that he's the only prophet of Yahweh left. Did you catch that? Actually, that's not true. That's patently false. In chapter 18, we didn't read this part today, but Elijah meets a man called Obadiah who's also a follower of God, and Obadiah says, I have preserved about 100 prophets in a cave. I've hidden them away from Jezebel, and I'm feeding them. He told that to Elijah. Elijah's not the only prophet left. Disillusionment, exaggerated self-importance. Right? Here's how it lands. When it comes to God's saving purposes in this period of time, Quote, Elijah is part of the plan, but he's not the plan itself. He's part of the plan, but he's not the plan itself. And the plan's not going to be exactly like he thought it was. The writers of Kings are showing us that Elijah only partially understands and partially accepts God's plans and God's purposes. And so his expectations need to be adjusted, and they will be. Look where Elijah ends up. He ends up on something called the mountain of the Lord. That's where he ends up in chapter 19, right? This is also known as Mount Horab. This is a very important mountain in the Old Testament. It's what you would call a thin place. And here again on this mountain, Elijah's going to have another encounter with Yahweh, except this time he's going to be the one who's going to get enlightened. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13, right? And Yahweh said, Go and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke pieces of rock. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was some more fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped up his face, and he went outside and stood at the entrance of the cave. And the voice came to him and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? There's tons of meaning in these verses, right? In the first place, we're learning a little bit more about how God is going to save his people, right? Sensational interventions like fire on the mountain, that's not going to be the norm. Right? There's some sensational stuff here. Earthquakes, fire, cracking rocks, right? But that's not where God is. He's in the whisper. He's in the whisper, verse 12, right? And the whisper is explained by what follows in verses 15 and 16, right? What does God do? He says something unexpected. He doesn't say go back and, you know, use some power to destroy Ahab and Jezebel, right? He says, I want you to go and anoint some new leaders. That's not very exciting. New king over Syria, new king over Israel, and there's a guy called Elisha, very similar name, but not quite the same. He's going to be your successor. Go anoint them, right? How does that interpret? God is telling Elijah that there will be a new order replacing the old order of Ahab and Jezebel, right? There will be a final victory over Baalism, but it's not going to happen like Elijah imagined, and he's not the only one involved. There's a lesson for us here. Eugene Peterson really pins the tail on this donkey. Let me read you something he said. The way of God cannot be imposed or mapped. It requires an active participation in following the Lord as he leads through sometimes strange and unfamiliar territory. 
in circumstances that become clear, only in hesitations and questioning, and in pauses and reflections where, where we engage in prayer with, in conversation with him and with other people. To be sure, Elijah has a part to play. But a big part of his part is to prepare other people for their part. You want me to say that again? But a big part of his part is to prepare other people for their part. People like Hazel, Jehu, and Elisha, verse 15 and 16, they're all going to contribute to the undermining of Ahab later. That's what Elijah needed to see, but it's what we need to see too, right? Application. Let me put it this way. If you follow Jesus, then you will, and this is a... This is a when, not an if statement. Then you will eventually experience some spiritual turmoil. Like Elijah, you're going to come face to face with unfulfilled expectations. That'll happen as sure as the sun's going to rise. We're loaded with expectations, right? We carry them towards other people, and if we know God, we carry them towards God too, right? In our case, our expectations, all these expectations, they're what I call market-shaped expectations because we're products of a consumer capitalist culture. I'm not an economist, I'm not going to critique that, but I am going to tell you how it impacts us. That culture conditions us. It says, figure out what you think you need and then let the market provide it for you. We do this all day, every day. That's what the market's for. It lives to serve our expectations. You better believe that'll shape the way you operate in your relationships and especially with God, right? But God doesn't operate towards us like the market does. The living God doesn't just give out what we want according to our expectations, right? He offers what we need, what the world needs. Do you see this? In Elijah's case, that means that God can and does work through things that makes God sometimes seem non-existent. Things like mundane, commonplace, political transitions, right? Sometimes that still, small voice can seem like no voice at all. So we have to learn patience. That's part of being under God's authority, which is, again, a value at this church. Being a Christian isn't mainly about, isn't mainly about being led to see God in our stories. Rather, it's about seeing our stories and God's story. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. Do you hold expectations about God that leave you bewildered? Have you ever done that? I know I'm not the only one. Maybe the problem's more inside us than it is outside us with God. Like Elijah, I think we all need a few mountaintop chats with the Lord from time to time. In this vein, on this note, it's very telling and comforting to note that Jesus' original 12 disciples, our forebearers in the faith, they need to be enlightened in the same way that Elijah did, the same way we do, right? They also had expectation problems. If you go to Luke chapter 9, those with fast fingers might get there in time, but if not, don't worry. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 55, you read about them wanting to act like Elijah. They encounter some bad hospitality in a Samaritan village. And Samaritans, for Jews at that time, were seen kind of like Baalist. He didn't want them in Israel. They received some bad hospitality. And how did Jesus' Jesus' holy disciples respond? In a rather unholy way. They said, Jesus, can we call down some fire on that village? They want to burn those people up who snubbed them. Hmm. I I bet they'd heard the story of 1 Kings 18. Yeah, their mom told them that. They have Elijah in mind. Well, guess what? This is another example of a human agenda conflicting with God's purposes. That's why Jesus rebukes them. Jesus has something else in mind. Luke 53 puts it like this. His face was set towards Jerusalem. What's that mean? Well, the answer is back in 1 Kings 18 where we started this morning. Chapter 18, verses 30 through 38. 
That's where Elijah builds the altar, right? He puts a sacrifice on it, and then the fire of God receives that sacrifice. That scene, as with every great story in the Bible, is singing about Jesus Christ. The fire on the mountain in 1 Kings 18 foreshadows God's ultimate work to renew relationship with his people, to turn hearts. Elijah was in for a wait, though. It was about an 800-year wait, but that waiting wasn't in vain. About eight centuries after this story happened, after these events, on top of yet another mountain, a mountain called Calvary, God showed up. His name was Jesus Christ. What part did Jesus play in that mountaintop encounter with God, right? Not what we'd expect. Not the part Elijah plays in 1 Kings 18, right? That wasn't Jesus' role. Where's Jesus? What's Jesus doing on top of this mountain? He's the sacrifice on the altar. He's the object of divine fire. What's that mean? Hang with me here. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice on the altar, that's something that it takes the fallout for someone else when justice needs to be served. That's why the altar in Kings 18 is built out of stones that represent Israel. It means Israel should have been on that altar. But there's a sacrifice in her place. According to the Bible... And this is confirmed every day on the CBC. Based on how we humans have run the world, some justice does need to be served. The world started good, but we've messed it up. And even if we weren't the first to mess it up, we have contributed to it. And given all the death that we've created, we deserve to die. But that's not what God wants. When we sin and mess up in our lives, we find that God didn't just go off and leave us or destroy us. He enters into it to save us. That's why God himself eventually became a sacrifice in our place. He absorbed the fallout of all the mess and the death that we have created. You see, Jesus didn't like Baal. He didn't say, slash yourself for me. He didn't require to cut us to cut ourselves to win his favor. He doesn't say, put death into your body for my sake, right? No. The true God was slashed for us. Death came into his body so that he could display his love for us. He got on the altar to save our lives. Do you know how much you're loved? Can you comprehend it? Can I? And out of all this flows divine mercy. That's what the Bible says. Not vengeance, as we'd expect, but mercy. Mercy that redefines our whole existence. It's right here again in 1 Kings 18. After the fire on the mountain, rain returns. At this point in the story, it hadn't rained for three years. But after the sacrifice is burned, water comes down from heaven. So too after the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. At Mount Carmel in the third year, Yahweh sent rain to renew the land. And in Jerusalem on the third day, Jesus raises from the dead to renew the whole world. And that's what Jesus has been doing ever since. One life at a time. I first became aware of it about eight years ago. Over a period of months. It's still going on right now. A bit like being rained on. St. John calls it living water. Maybe it's pouring into you right now by the Spirit of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Who else loves you like this? Run towards him.